Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Please open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, specifically this morning, the last portion of verse 8 and verse 9. Though we're going to back up and begin reading in verse 7. Down through verse 9, maybe verse 10 and 11. I've shared before as we've walked through this passage of Scripture that this is one of those challenging text for any preacher where there's so much being um, written, so much being said, so much being highlighted, being brought to our attention, and even implied that it can be difficult to communicate. Uh, it's, it's almost the equivalent of, and you've heard this illustration before, trying to drink from a fire hose. Uh, there's so much that we could consider that would be good for us to consider, and yet trying to do all of that in one setting uh, is is almost impossible, even almost unbearable. And so that's kind of where I'm at this morning in considering these verses. I, I feel the need to, to maybe be a little bit more quick through them than I have previously. But I don't want you to miss the significance of what's being said. And so, um, bear with me as I try to strike the balance appropriately. Let's read first thing this morning, starting in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, and read down at least through verse 9. Paul writes and he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to begin this morning by reading you an illustration from Charles Spurgeon. He shared this uh, concerning this very passage here some 150 years ago, plus or minus a few. I think it's helpful. I think it's fitting. I think it's actually a, a rather perfect illustration. This is what he says. This text reminds me of a ship in a storm. When the captain leaves the harbor, he has cargo on board, of which he takes great care. But when a tremendous wind is blowing and the ship labors because it's too heavy laden, and there is great fear that the ship will not outride the storm, 
Then see how eagerly the sailors lighten the ship. They bring up from the hold with all diligence the very things that they before prized. And they seem rejoiced to now heave them into the sea. Never men more eager to get than these are to throw away. There go the casks of flour and the bars of iron and the manufactured goods. Overboard go valuable bales of merchandise. Nothing seems to be worth keeping. How is this? Are not all these things good? Yes, but they are not good to a sinking ship. Anything must go to save life. Anything to outride the storm. It also suggests another picture. An English warship of the olden times cruising the ocean. And she spies a Spanish galleon in the distance laden down with gold from the Indies. The captain and the men are determined to overtake her and capture her for they have a relish for the prize money. But their vessel, it sails too heavily. What then? If she will not move because of her heavy load, then they will fling into the sea everything they can knowing that if they can capture the Spanish vessel, the bounty will make amends for all that they lose and vastly more. Do you wonder at the eagerness to lose the little to gain the great? So it is with the man who is earnest to win Christ and be found in Him. That illustration perfectly summarizes, perfectly depicts what Paul has been saying in chapter 3 of Philippians. He has this uh, recollection that he's reminding these Philippian believers of in verses 4, 5, and 6 of his former life in Judaism, his life before Christ, where he highlights his prestigious heritage, his impeccable behavior. And all of these things are not just the good works of Paul's life, they're the best things of Paul's life, the best achievements of his life. And yet, if he is to save his life, then the best things of his life must be jettisoned overboard as nothing better than trash, so that he may gain the treasure of Christ. If he is to outride the storm of life, if he is to arrive safely at the shores of heaven, at the harbor of heaven, then even the best things of his own ability, the best things of his advancement in life, achievements in this life, they must be cast away. These prized possessions regarded as nothing more than trash. That's what he's told us in verse 7 and verse 8. He says, whatever gain I had, he's referring to those things in verses 5 and 6, that prestigious heritage, that impeccable behavior, that gain that he had, that, that thing that he wants, those things he once counted as profit in his spiritual life, he now counts as liability for the sake of Christ. Last week I highlighted that by the time he gets into verse 8, he expands the idea, he expands his language, and he intensifies his language. It's not just the things of verse 5 and 6 that he once regarded as gain, but now in verse 8, it's absolutely everything is regarded as loss. Because there's been a treasure discovered that's greater than anything else he could lay his hands on. Greater than anything else that he could set his heart towards greater than anything else that he could possibly ever conceive. 
And he tells us that treasure. It's the surpassing worth, not just of Christ Jesus, but of specifically knowing Christ Jesus. Now certainly, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus is embedded in the worth of Christ Himself. There is no one of greater glory, no one of greater exaltation, no one of greater worth than our Lord. Who, as we've already discussed in this letter, in chapter 2, was with God, equal to God, but also emptied Himself, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then God highly exalts Him. Bestows on Him the name that's above every name. And at His name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul writes and he says, it's, it's that Jesus, that man who was in heaven, who then came for us, died for us, and then is subsequently exalted by God because of His obedience. He is of surpassing worth. And knowing Him, specifically knowing Him as my Lord, is of greater value than, than anything else. Than my best behavior, my best rewards, my best awards, my best achievements, my best reputation. Better than anything this world could, could offer. Better than anything that I could create myself. Knowing Christ as my Lord is of surpassing worth. And so then he comes to say where we pick up this morning at the end of verse 8, and he says, For His sake, I have suffered. Remember that word suffered. It wasn't easy. It's never easy to cast off the flesh. But it's always worth it. So he says, I've suffered the loss. Look, he expands even more. The loss of all things. I'll forfeit everything. I'll forfeit myself. I'll forfeit my strength. I'll forfeit my works. I'll forfeit my righteousness. I'll forfeit my behavior. I'll, before, I'll forfeit the, the advancement of the world. The things that the world deems as important. The things the world deems as successful. I'll give it all up. I'll, I'll suffer the loss of absolutely everything. Every ounce and count them, notice he intensifies, doesn't just expand, he intensifies, count them all as trash. And last week he says, we, we highlighted the, the very reason he sees everything else as trash is because he sees everything else as compared to Christ and nothing measures up. We highlighted that word surpassing, and that word can also imply transcendent and Transcendent means going beyond or above, but even those words are somewhat inadequate because beyond or above means that He must be beyond something or above something and everything else is a poor comparison to Christ. He is in a class all by Himself. So He's transcendent. He is other. He's surpassing. To the degree that when anything else, all things are held up next to the glowing, glorious light of Christ, it all appears as trash. 
And so it's no wonder. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss. Not easy, but worth it. I've suffered the loss of all things. And now consider them, count them, regard them, treat them as trash to be thrown overboard the ship. And then this is where we pick up this morning. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. It's those words in order at the end of verse 8 or that you might find in verse 8. It's um, reasoning language. It's purpose language. I'm I'm doing this in order that or so that because I want to gain this, because I'm chasing after this, I'm pursuing this. It's for this very reason that I would give up these things and count them as trash. Last week I told you that salvation... True salvation, as the Bible describes it, affects real change in the believer's heart. That then leads to their their change outwardly. And we aren't to get those things out of order. Outward change never produces inward change. But biblical inward change that comes from knowing Christ, being converted in the heart, and having new life from the Spirit always leads to outward change. That's why we find the language of a new birth in the Bible. Or new life. Or 2 Corinthians 5 becoming a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Because there's this change that takes place based out of true conversion. You're you're converted from one thing to another. And that always begins on the inside. And so for Paul, it began with a change in perspective. What he once deemed valuable and and as a prize on his life, he now regards as trash. His, his perspective has changed. His pursuit has changed. No longer is he pursuing impeccable behavior according to the laws of Moses or the Jewish laws or the Pharisaical laws. Now he's pursuing knowing Christ. Nothing greater than that pursuit. Well, today we find that his purpose has changed. The things that define Him now are different. When I say purpose, I mean a purpose of of life. Not just one purpose among many. I mean a, a central, singular purpose. And we define purpose very differently based upon occasion, but at least universally, we see a purpose of life as something that's necessary. Something that's significant. Something that provides meaning. Something that we find our identity in. That's what a purpose of life is. It's something that we devote our whole selves to. We spend ourselves for. We regard it, whatever this purpose may be, as of such priority that our entire lives revolve around it. Now there are all sorts of good purposes out there. And people will center their lives upon those good purposes. Maybe being a good mom or a good dad. A good son or a good daughter, a good friend, a good co-worker. Maybe being a good neighbor. Maybe helping the poor in society. Nursing the sick. Those are all good things, right? Even for the Christian. We might be tempted to find our purpose even in Christian things. Even in things we might classify as godly things. They're not just good purposes, they're godly purposes. Ministry. 
begins to identify us. Or evangelism. Or worship. Or our spiritual gifts. Things that we would certainly espouse as a church are good and godly things that we ought to devote ourselves to. But they are not to be the purpose of our life. The Christian, once converted, should have a new singular focus, a new singular purpose in life. One purpose that transcends all other purposes. One singular purpose for which all these other things come in subjection to and are defined by their relation to. See, even the good things, just like in the illustration from Spurgeon, even the best of things must be jettisoned over the side of the ship so that we might save our lives in Christ. He becomes our new singular purpose. Specifically, mentioned in part of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9, specifically gaining Christ and being found in Christ. Matthew Henry, an old Puritan pastor, <clears throat> wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. And on this verse, he, he says, the heart that is set upon Christ is identified or defined by these two things. Gaining Christ and being found in Christ. You see, as a Christian, our perspective changes when we become saved. We now see the world through the truth of God's Word. We interpret the world through the truth of God's Word. And our pursuit changes. We chase after knowing Jesus. <clears throat> and not just knowing Him initially in salvation, but growing in a personal, experiential relationship with Him. And also our purpose changes. We now center our lives upon, define ourselves by, and find our identity in gaining Christ and being found in Him. We do that not just with intellectual understanding. We do that by personal experience also. That's what Paul is highlighting here. I have suffered the loss of all these things. I count them as trash. Even the best of things in life. So that, in order that, first, I may gain Christ. Let's consider that one. That I may gain Christ. Now the English dictionary defines the word gain uh, in a number of ways. One definition says it's, it's getting something as a result of one's own effort. Another definition says it's acquiring something as in an increase or an addition to oneself. Other definitions include winning something. And you're your translation might even say this. If you have an older translation, it might not say gain Christ. It might even say win Christ. Other definitions for the word gain in the English dictionary include to reach or arrive to something by personal effort. To achieve or progress or even attain something by one's own effort. All of those definitions, as we consider the word here that Paul uses in verse 8, are, are wrong. They fall short. We don't attain Christ by one's personal effort. We don't acquire Christ by our ability or our goodness. You've heard me say before, and it's something I, I truly believe and truly value, when we come to, 
saving faith in Christ, it's not because we brought anything to the table. It's not because in any way we were attractive to Jesus. It's not because Christ couldn't exist without having us. It's purely by grace. Purely by steadfast love that we've read several times from the Old Testament this morning. Purely based on His own mercy. Purely based out of His good desire to save us. So when we talk about gaining Christ, we're not talking about attracting Christ to ourselves or doing something to possess Christ. Paul uses it in the same way that he uses the word earlier in verse 7. A few weeks ago we looked at verse 7 and in that verse he refers to the gain of the previous verses, verses 5 and 6, the gain of his former life. That gain, he says, I'm going to count as loss. So he uses that word there in the negative sense, but the the meaning of that word is, a, is business related. It's a, a business term. It means rather profit. Gain as in profit. And he says, what, what I once counted as a profit, spiritually speaking, credit to my spiritual bank account, I now regard as a liability. That's what he means by the word loss. Whatever gain I had, I now count as loss. Whatever profit I thought that I had in my works, my behavior, my heritage, my nationality, I now regard as a liability to finding Christ. Well, as we come down to verse 8, he now uses the same word, but he uses it in a positive sense, still implying business language, business terminology. When he says, I gain Christ, he means I find profit in Christ. In other words, his his value systems changed. Before he was converted, his profit was in his own works. Now that he's met Christ on this Damascus road, his only spiritual wealth comes from Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt because then they find infinite spiritual wealth in their Lord and Savior. So he writes, he says, I I give up everything so that I might find my spiritual wealth in Christ. There is no other, there is no other gain. There is no other, other profit to be had. I give up the many things for the one man. Because in that one man, I have more than the many things I had before. Christ alone is how we're saved, right? It's never Christ plus something. It's never Christ plus our our good intentions, our motives, our obedience, our works, our efforts. Even our desire. We're not saved because we love Jesus and we really want to be. The only way to be saved is through Christ alone. And so Christ is our one and our singular gain. And that, church, as a... As a Christian, for Christians, that becomes our purpose in life. To gain Jesus. To find our entire spiritual, physical, human identity bound up in this one man as our only only hope. Our only credit. Paul here, as he writes in verse 8, doesn't just mean gaining Christ in an initial sense. As in we gain Christ at salvation and and then we're done. 
That's certainly on one hand true. We gain Christ at salvation. And that gain right there is enough to secure us for all all eternity. It's because in Colossians chapter 2 it is. This Jesus that we gain paid all of our debt. And He paid it because He nailed it to the cross. And so, the initial gaining of Christ is enough because we are debt free. We are incredibly wealthy in spiritual terms because Christ becomes our profit in that moment. Our, our, our credit, our, our spiritual money in that, that moment. But it's also implied here in this personal sense, not just that I may gain Christ once, but that I may continue to gain Christ. That I may have more of Jesus. That I may continually grow in possessing Christ. You see, I think too many people only want enough Jesus to get them out of hell. I want just enough to be safe. But the one who's tasted of the grace of God in their heart, the one who is truly drunk of the sweetness of Jesus and feasted on the living bread that's come down from heaven, isn't content with just enough of Jesus and isn't content with just a little bit of Jesus. If I may use the phrase, they become greedy for Jesus. Contentment is, is in some sense unattainable. I have to have more of Christ. I have to keep gaining. I have to keep chasing. I have to keep getting more of Jesus. I need more of the Lord. They fight against these spiritual droughts in which they think they've been filled up with Jesus. Or when their hearts go, grow cold and they think they've had enough. They realize, no, I haven't. I need more of Christ. My purpose has, has become pursuing, chasing after Jesus that I may, in one sense, possess Him. We don't often talk about um, salvation in that those terms, or at least I don't, usually refer to Christ possessing me. I think that is better. But there is a biblical sense in which we are to possess Christ. And the, the reason for that biblical language, that, that metaphor, is to remind us that we are to keep eagerly with great devotion and dedication and intensity chasing after Jesus. Now we sing a song here, that great song, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's a wonderful song because it reminds us that when we can't hold Jesus, which is often, He'll still keep holding us. But that doesn't mean we aren't to try to hold Jesus. To cling to our Savior. To, to clutch on to Him. To hang off of His robes if we have to. To, 
scratch and claw our way to the cross. To dig our heels in so that we're immovable, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In some sense, gaining Christ means possessing Christ. And when we talk about possessing Christ, we mean to run after Him with full steam, with, with the full engine revving up in our souls so that we may, with every fiber of our being, fill our fists with the flesh of Christ. We possess Him. Your only hope of being with the Father in the end, is if you possess Jesus. It's not. It is not ever. Because you have put all these other good works to your name, or in your bank account, or to your credit. You need but one thing to be right with God. And it's Jesus. More could be said. Maybe more ought to be said. But at the risk of belaboring the point, let me move on. Because it's not just gaining Christ that Paul gives up all these things for. It's also that he would be found in Christ. Now, if gaining Christ has an implication of us possessing Jesus, then being found in Christ has the implication of Him possessing us. This phrase, this language, in Him, is one of Paul's favorite designations. In fact, he uses it um, over and over and over in Ephesians chapter 1. I didn't plan on reading it, but it would be good to read it. Blessed be the God, just listen to all the in Christ or in Him language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined, been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, and so on and so forth. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And on and on and on and on. It's a favorite designation of Paul, and perhaps a neglected aspect of our salvation. In Him language highlights our union that we have with Christ. Our union with Christ as Christians is the bedrock of our salvation. You're not saved to an idea. You're not saved to a concept. You're not saved to an institution. You're saved to a person. And your salvation is defined by not just a relationship to this person, but being in this person. Which means you're swallowed up in Jesus. You're 
embraced by Jesus, enveloped by Jesus, consumed by Jesus. What do you think, what do you think saves you from the wrath of God? What do you think gives you access to the Father? What do you think causes you to be alive for all eternity? Is it just merely a promise? A declaration of a word? On one hand, maybe. But on a much more fuller sense, all of those things are true because you are in Christ. You're saved from the wrath of God because you're in the refuge of your Savior who paid for the wrath of God and, and no longer will have to pay for it again. You're safe and secure from judgment and condemnation because you are in Jesus. You are living for eternity, not just because Christ declared it to be so, but because He swallowed you up in Him. We are eternally living because we've been united now to the One who lives eternally. The very bedrock of our salvation is being found in Jesus. Which means now, our purpose has changed as Christians. We define ourselves by the One who consumes us. We're no longer who we were, though unfortunately we wrestle with who we were. But we're no longer who we were. We're now swallowed up in Christ. Our identity is being swallowed up in Christ. Our ability being swallowed up in Christ. Our motives, our pleasures, our intentions, our thoughts, our deeds, our desires, swallowed up by Christ. We go from those outside the Lord to being saved and becoming those inside the Lord. That's what it means to be found in Him. Paul says, my great pursuit, my great purpose of life is to come to the end and being found by the Father as being in Jesus. So that when God looks at me, He sees His Son. And when God thinks of me, He sees His Son. And when God acts towards me, He acts towards His Son. We no longer live for ourselves as Christians. In fact, and we do this all too often, we no longer make our own decisions for our lives. We no longer dictate our futures. We no longer decide our careers. We no longer decide our spouses, our friends. We no longer decide what we get to do on Sunday mornings. We joyfully submit all of those things to our Lord because we are now entirely consumed by and thus governed by Him in every detail and every aspect. From the most intimate moments of life to the most mundane moments of life to the grand pictures of life, all of it is governed by the Lord who now swallows us up in Himself and becomes our identity. Paul says, I give up everything. I give up myself, my works, my heritage, my nationality, everything, all things, in order that, so that, for this reason, I would be found in Christ. 
And just like with gaining Christ, this isn't just an initial moment of salvation, though that also is true. At the initial moment of salvation, you are brought into Christ and you remain there for eternity. What a blessed thought. But never will we trip out of Christ or fall out of Christ. Never will Christ accidentally drop us or leave us behind or let go. As we've been studying on Wednesday nights in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 10, I, I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I hold them for all eternity and nobody, nothing will snatch them out of my hand. And the Father who is greater than I, no one will snatch them out of His hand. We are, once we're in Christ at the moment of salvation, we are there for all eternity. And yet, also, we continue to press deeper into Christ. We continue to submit more of ourselves to Christ. We continue to run just like gaining Christ. We continue to run hard after the center of Christ. We don't just want to be on the fringes, if I may use a very imperfect illustration. We don't just want to be on the fringes of Christ. We want to be at the very core of Jesus. We want to be at the very center of His will. The center of His pleasures. The center of His love. The center of His works. Our purpose now becomes pressing deeper into Christ. Now, all of those things, those two things right there. He says, I, I serve for the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that so that I may gain Christ, number one, be found in Him, number two. And it's for this purpose, the rest of verse 9. So that I would not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. You see in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul tells of a time in his life when he was trying to attain his own righteousness. But then he encounters Jesus and in such a way, he encounters him personally, experientially, intellectually, to such a degree that this massive change happens in his life. His perspective, pursuit, purpose changes. So that by the end of this biographical sketch, he no longer looks for righteousness in himself, but only in Christ. You see the radical transformation that he's highlighting in his own testimony. I looked for righteousness in myself, encountered Jesus, found real righteousness in Him. And so he says, I, 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 I'm striving to gain Christ. I'm pressing in to, to be found in Christ. Not, this is, he mentions righteousness two ways, a negative and a positive. This is the first one, the negative, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. There's two, two identification factors there in this negative aspect of righteousness. This is the, the righteousness that he does not want to have. The first designation is the righteousness of my own. 
is defined by Him. A righteousness based on His ability. A righteousness derived from self. And we know that such a righteousness is never attainable. Why? We read it today in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. There is no escaping the corrupting factor of sin upon our very nature. We are the seed of Adam. And the failure of our first father, our failure of our first parents, pass sin down from generation to generation to generation. Remember with me here that sin isn't just about the things that we do or don't do. Sin, because of the fall, is who we are apart from Christ. So that yes, even the little toddler that runs around to the oldest innocent individual on the planet who may not be committing sin by action or lack of, but is still sinful in their nature, that's what must be dealt with. We can never have a righteousness that's defined by us or based on our ability or found within ourselves because at the very core of who we are apart from Christ, we are sinful. So even the very best of things that we do, the good things that we do, are tainted with sin. And God, in perfect justice, as a perfect judge, will never permit sin into His kingdom. And so even your best act, even mildly tainted with sin, disqualifies you from citizenship in heaven. I maintain that even the best acts perpetrated on humanity are often corrupted by motives of personal gain or reputation or popularity. Pride. Paul says, I don't want that righteousness in verse 9. I don't want a righteousness of my own. I tried that. Verses 5 and 6, I tried that. Gets you nowhere. The second descriptor is very closely connected, but it warrants its own thoughts here for a moment. It's a righteousness that's not just of his own, but a righteousness that also comes from the law, which must be done on your own. But I think it's worth mentioning here that Paul says, I don't want a righteousness that's even attained through doing the law of God. Because just like with my own poor ability, I can't keep it. Every step of obedience to the law, tainted and corrupted with sin. Even trying to keep the Mosaic Law, even trying to do what I did in verse 6, of being a, 
uh, zealous persecutor of the church, righteous under the law and being blameless, even being a Pharisee when it came to the law. None of that gave me righteousness. I could keep none of it. In other places, Paul says, even if, I'm paraphrasing, even if I kept nine of the Ten Commandments, I've still broken the whole law. One error, one false step, one mistake, one breaking of the law makes me guilty. So there's no righteousness to be had from my own ability, no righteousness to be had from defining it in myself, no righteousness to be had that even comes from keeping the law. I cannot keep the law. In fact, let me let me just flip over. Seth read it this morning in Romans 3. Don't take my word for it. Take Scripture's word for it. In case you believe me to be making this up. Romans 3, verse 20. Seth didn't read it. He, he could have. It was the verse before he read. It says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. In verse 19, Paul has said, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And under that accountability, just so you know, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No human being will be made right before God. He says it again in verse 28, in case the reader happened to, to blank out. He says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Speaking personally, back in Philippians 3, verse 9, Paul says, I've been down that road. There is no righteousness to be had. It is a desert wasteland. So then he mentions righteousness positively. He says instead, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, that's what I'm pursuing after. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now it's a righteousness no longer defined by self. It's, it's a righteousness defined by Christ because it only comes through Christ and specifically only comes through faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about that righteousness. Verse 21, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, there's the in Him language, we might become the righteousness of God. The only righteousness to be had, to be offered to humanity, comes in relation to Jesus. And the only way that relation or that righteousness is gained or found is through faith. It's the righteousness of God that depends on faith. He's already stated this to the Roman believers in his letter to the Romans in chapter 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You and I, we need righteousness to be with God. We need to be right. And the only way we get that rightness, that righteousness, is if Christ applies His righteousness to us because we have placed our faith in Him. Now this righteousness, very quickly, please bear with me, in verse 9, is the righteousness that comes from God. It's a righteousness that's declared and applied. I want to, I want you to hear this distinction before I wrap up. It's a, a righteousness declared. It's a righteousness applied. It's declared in the sense that we're justified before the Father in the work of Christ. In other words, God legally removes our guilt as judge. He declares our, our being as guiltless and then declares us as righteous. As if we've never sinned. As if we are perfectly right before Him. It's a declared righteousness. Listen to me. Here's, here's the glory of the Gospel. And here's an exposing of the enemy's lies. Even if you have committed sin this morning, if you are found in Christ, you are still declared righteous. The beauty of the Gospel is that when God deems you righteous, you are righteous forever. And that when the enemy comes along and says, you've sinned, you must not be righteous. You're guilty. You must not belong to God. You've sinned. You don't deserve God's presence. The Gospel is screaming over us, righteous, righteous, righteous. Not because of our own works, but because of the works of another. It's also a righteousness applied. Because it's a righteousness that comes from God. It's a righteousness that reflects His heart, reflects His character, reflects His will. And God doesn't just declare us something and then leave us on our own to figure it out. This is the point of sanctification. He makes us into the image of His Son. So if God has declared you righteous, He is also making you righteous. Which means, our Heavenly Father loves us so much, He doesn't give up on us. He extends divine, eternal patience towards us. And like the good Heavenly Father that He is, He walks with us step for step, hand in hand, making us more like Him in our heart, in our character, in our will. So that our heart matches His heart, our character matches His character, our will matches His will. We have a declared righteousness in the blood of Christ that's given to us purely through faith and grace, we also have an applied righteousness where God is making us right with Him just like Him. So Paul's whole purpose has been changed because he's encountered Christ. He gives up everything so that he may gain Jesus as his spiritual treasure 
and gain more and more and more of Him, also so that He might be found in Christ, pressing in deeper and deeper to the center, very heartbeat of who Jesus is, so that He wouldn't have to have this righteousness of His own that matters for nothing, but that He would have the very righteousness of God both declared over Him and applied to Him, a righteousness that depends on faith and is given to you through faith. You can't make up a God like this. You can't make up a gospel like this. It's too good for our minds to conceive of. Too glorious for us to fabricate out of thin air. Too comprehensive for us to make it up. God our glorious God has elected to save sinful humanity. He does so by giving us His Son as a spiritual treasure of possession. And He does so by giving us through His Son as a gift that's to be found in Him. And once secure in Him through faith, He says, those are my righteous children. And I will forever make them more like Me. Praise God that there is a righteousness to be had so that we can be right with Him forever. And that that righteousness is freely offered through faith in Christ. Father, we praise You for the glorious truths of Your Word this morning. We pray it would have its full effect upon our hearts and our minds. We pray that the lost this morning would come to know You in saving faith and that Your children this morning would be stirred up to rejoicing and thanksgiving for the goodness that You lavish upon us through Christ. O Lord, You have changed our hearts. You have saved us. Keep transforming us. Keep sanctifying us and changing us so that we would have a new perspective on life, new pursuit in this life, a new purpose and identity, meaning and significance, which is solely found in gaining You, find, being found in You so that we might be righteous in You. Grant faith this morning, O God. And help us now to respond in right praise. Thank you and we love you. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.